0: Section 9 of the Theory of the Leisure Class This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Kools The Theory of the Leisure Class by Torstein Veblen Third part of Chapter 4. Conspicuous Consumption The greater prevalence of dissipation among printers than among the average of workmen is accordingly attributable, at least in some measure to the greater ease of movement and the more transient character of acquaintance and human contact in this trade. But the substantial ground of this high requirement in dissipation is in the last analysis no other than that same propensity for a manifestation of dominance and pecuniary decency, which makes the French peasant proprietor parsimonious and frugal and induces the American millionaire to found colleges, hospitals and museums. If the canon of conspicuous consumption were not offset to a considerable extent by other features of human nature, alien to it, any saving should logically be impossible for a population situated as the artisan and labouring classes of the cities are at present, however high their wages or their income might be. But there are other standards of repute and other more or less imperative canons of conduct besides wealth and its manifestation, and some of these come in to accentuate or to qualify the broad fundamental canon of conspicuous waste under the simple test of effectiveness for advertising we should expect to find leisure and the conspicuous consumption of goods dividing the field of pecuniary emulation pretty evenly between them at the outset leisure might then be expected gradually to yield ground and tend to obsolescence as the economic development goes forward and the community increases in size while the conspicuous consumption of goods should gradually gain in importance, both absolutely and relatively, until it had absorbed all the available product, leaving nothing over beyond a bare livelihood. But the actual course of development has been somewhat different from this ideal scheme. Leisure held the first place at the start, and came to hold a rank very much above wasteful consumption of goods, both as a direct exponent of wealth and as an element in the standard of decency during the quasi peaceable culture. From that point onward consumption has gained ground, until at present it unquestionably holds the primacy, though it is still far from absorbing the entire margin of production above the subsistence minimum. The early ascendancy of leisure as a means of reputability is traceable to the archaic distinction between noble and ignoble employments. Leisure is honourable and becomes imperative partly because it shows exemption from ignoble labour. The archaic differentiation into noble and ignoble classes is based on an invidious distinction between employments as honorific or debasing, and this traditional distinction grows into an imperative canon of decency during the early quasi-peaceful stage its ascendancy is furthered by the fact that leisure is still fully as effective an evidence of wealth as consumption. Indeed, so effective is it in the relatively small and stable human environment to which the individual is exposed at that cultural stage, that, with the aid of the archaic tradition which deprecates all productive labour, it gives rise to a large impecunious leisure class, and it even tends to limit the production of the community's industry to the subsistence minimum. This extreme inhibition of industry is avoided because slave labour, working under a compulsion more vigorous than that of reputability, is forced to turn out a product in excess of the subsistence minimum of the working class. The subsequent relative decline in the use of conspicuous leisure as a basis of repute is due partly to an increasing relative effectiveness of consumption as an evidence of wealth, but in part it is traceable to another force, alien and in some degree antagonistic to the usage of conspicuous waste. This alien factor is the instinct of workmanship. Other circumstances permitting, that instinct disposes men to look with favour upon productive efficiency and on whatever is of human use. It disposes them to deprecate waste of substance or effort. The instinct of workmanship is present in all men, and asserts itself even under very adverse circumstances. So that, however wasteful a given expenditure may be in reality, it must at least have some colorable excuse in the way of an ostensible purpose." The manner in which, under special circumstances, the instinct eventuates in a taste for exploit and an invidious discrimination between noble and ignoble classes has been indicated in an earlier chapter. Insofar as it comes into conflict with the law of conspicuous waste, the instinct of workmanship expresses itself not so much in insistence on substantial usefulness as in an abiding sense of the odiousness and aesthetic impossibility of what is obviously futile. Being of the nature of an instinctive affection, its guidance touches chiefly and immediately the obvious and apparent violation of its requirements it is only less promptly and with less constraining force that it reaches such substantial violations of its requirements as are appreciated only upon reflection so long as all labour continues to be performed exclusively or usually by slaves the baseness of all productive effort is too constantly and deterrently present in the mind of men to allow the instinct of workmanship seriously to take effect in the direction of industrial usefulness but when the quasi-peaceable stage with slavery and status passes into the peaceable stage of industry with wage-labour and cash payment the instinct comes more effectively into play it then begins aggressively to shape men's views of what is meritorious and asserts itself at least as an auxiliary canon of self-complacency all extraneous considerations apart, those persons, adult, are but a vanishing minority today who harbor no inclination to the accomplishment of some end, or who are not impelled of their own motion to shape some object or fact or relation for human use. The propensity may in large measure be overborne by the more immediately constraining incentive to a reputable leisure and an avoidance of indecorous usefulness, and it may therefore work itself out in make-believe only as for instance in social duties and in quasi-artistic or quasi-scholarly accomplishments, in the care and decoration of the house, in suing circle activity or dress reform, in proficiency at dress cards, yachting golf, and various sports. But the fact that it may under stress of circumstances eventuate in inanities no more disproves the presence of the instinct than the reality of the brooding instinct is disproved by inducing a hen to sit on a nestful of china eggs. This latter-day uneasy reaching out for some form of purposeful activity that shall at the same time not be indecorously productive of either individual or collective gain marks a difference of attitude between the modern leisure class and that of the quasi-peaceable stage. At the earliest stage, as was said above, the all-dominating institution of slavery and status acted resistlessly to discountenance exertion directed to other than naively predatory ends. It was still possible to find some habitual employment for the inclination to action in the way of forcible aggression or repression directed against hostile groups or against the subject classes within the group, and this sued to relieve the pressure and draw off the energy of the leisure class without a resort to actually useful or even ostensibly useful employments. The practice of hunting also sued the same purpose in some degree. When the community developed into a peaceful industrial organization and when fuller occupation of the land had reduced the opportunities for the hunt to an inconsiderable residue, the pressure of energy seeking purposeful employment was left to find an outlet in some other direction. The ignominy which attaches to useful effort also entered upon a less acute phase with the disappearance of compulsory labor and the instinct of workmanship then came to assert itself with more persistence and consistency. The line of least resistance has changed in some measure, and the energy which formerly found a vent in predatory activity now in part takes the direction of some ostensibly useful end. Ostensibly purposeless leisure has come to be deprecated, especially among that large portion of the leisure class whose plebeian origin acts to set them at variance with the tradition of the otium cum dignitate, But that canon of reputability which discountenances all employment that is of the nature of productive effort is still at hand, and will permit nothing beyond the most transient vogue to any employment that is substantially useful or productive. The consequence is that a change has been wrought in the conspicuous leisure practised by the leisure class, not so much in substance as in form. A reconciliation between the two conflicting requirements is effected by a resort to make-believe many an intricate polite observances and social duties of a ceremonial nature are developed many organizations are founded with some specious object of amelioration embodied in their official style and title there is much coming and going and a deal of talk to the end that the talkers may not have occasion to reflect on what is the effectual economic value of their traffic And along with the make-believe of purposeful employment, and woven inextricably into its texture, there is commonly, if not invariably, a more or less appreciable element of purposeful effort, directed to some serious end. In the narrower sphere of vicarious leisure, a similar change has gone forward. Instead of simply passing her time in visible idleness, as in the best days of the patriarchal regime, the housewife of the advanced, peaceable stage applies herself assiduously to household cares. The salient features of this development of domestic service have already been indicated. Throughout the entire evolution of conspicuous expenditure, whether of goods or of services or human life, runs the obvious implication that in order to effectually mend the consumer's good fame it must be an expenditure of superfluities in order to be reputable it must be wasteful no merit would accrue from the consumption of the bare necessaries of life except by comparison with the abjectly poor who fall short even of the subsistence minimum and no standard of expenditure could result from such a comparison except the most prosaic and unattractive level of decency a standard of life would still be possible which should admit of invidious comparison in other respects than that of opulence, as, for instance, a comparison in various directions in the manifestation of moral, physical, intellectual or aesthetic force. Comparison in all these directions is in vogue today, and the comparison made in these respects is commonly so inextricably bound up with a pecuniary comparison as to be scarcely distinguishable from the latter. This is especially true as regards the current rating of expressions of intellectual and aesthetic force of proficiency, so that we frequently interpret as aesthetic or intellectual a difference which in substance is pecuniary only. The use of the term waste is in one respect an unfortunate one. As used in the speech of everyday life, the word carries an undertone of deprecation it is here used for want of a better term that will adequately describe the same range of motives and of phenomena and it is not to be taken in an odious sense as implying an illegitimate expenditure of human products or of human life in the view of economic theory the expenditure in question is no more and no less legitimate than any other expenditure It is here called waste because this expenditure does not serve human life or human well-being on the whole, not because it is waste or misdirection of effort or expenditure as viewed from the standpoint of the individual consumer who chooses it. If he chooses it, that disposes of the question of its relative utility to him, as compared with other forms of consumption that would not be deprecated on account of their wastefulness. Whatever forms of expenditure the consumer chooses, or whatever end he seeks in making his choice, has utility to him by virtue of his preference. As seen from the point of view of the individual consumer, the question of wastefulness does not arise within the scope of economic theory proper. The use of the word waste as a technical term, therefore, implies no deprecation of the motives or of the ends sought by the consumer under this canon of conspicuous waste. But it is on other grounds worth noting that the term waste in the language of everyday life implies deprecation of what is characterized as wasteful. This common sense implication is itself an outcropping of the instinct of workmanship. The popular reprobation of waste goes to say that in order to be at peace with himself, the common man must be able to see in any and all human effort and human enjoyment an enhancement of life and well-being on the whole. In order to meet with unqualified approval, any economic fact must approve itself under the test of impersonal usefulness, usefulness as seen from the point of view of the generically human relative or competitive advantage of one individual in comparison with another does not satisfy the economic conscience and therefore competitive expenditure has not the approval of this conscience in strict accuracy nothing should be included under the head of conspicuous waste but such expenditure as is incurred on the ground of an invidious pecuniary comparison but in order to bring any given item or element under this head it is not necessary that it should be recognized as waste in this sense by the person incurring the expenditure it frequently happens that an element of the standard of living which set out with being primarily wasteful ends with becoming, in the apprehension of the consumer, a necessary of life, and it may in this way become as indispensable as any other item of the consumer's habitual expenditure, as items which sometimes fall under this head, and are therefore available as illustrations of the manner in which this principle applies, may be cited carpets and tapestries, silver table service, waiter services, silk hats, starched linen, many articles of jewellery and of dress, The indispensability of these things after the habit and the convention have been formed, however, has little to say in the classification of expenditures as waste or not waste in the technical meaning of the word. The test to which all expenditure must be brought in an attempt to decide that point is the question whether it serves directly to enhance human life on the whole, whether it furthers the life process taken impersonally. For this is the basis of a war of the instinct of workmanship, and that instinct is the court of final appeal in any question of economic truth or adequacy, it is a question as to the award rendered by a dispassionate common sense the question is therefore not whether under the existing circumstances of individual habit and social custom a given expenditure conduces to the particular consumer's gratification or peace of mind but whether, aside from acquired tastes and from the canons of usage and conventional decency, its result is a net gain in comfort or in the fullness of life. Customary expenditure must be classed under the head of waste, in so far as the custom on which it rests is traceable to the habit of making an invidious pecuniary comparison, in so far as it is conceived that it could not have become customary and prescriptive without the backing of this principle of pecuniary reputability or relative economic success. It is obviously not necessary that a given object of expenditure should be exclusively wasteful in order to come in under the category of conspicuous waste. An article may be useful and wasteful both, and its utility to the consumer may be made up of use and waste in the most varying proportions. Consumable goods and even productive goods generally show the two elements in combination, as constituents of their utility although in a general way the element of waste tends to predominate in articles of consumption, while the contrary is true of articles designed for productive use. Even in articles which appear at first glance to serve for pure ostentation only, it is always possible to detect the presence of some, at least ostensible, useful purpose, and on the other hand, even in special machinery and tools contrived for some particular industrial process, as well as in the rudest appliances of human industry, the traces of conspicuous waste, or at least of the habit of ostentation, usually become evident on a close scrutiny. It would be hazardous to assert that a useful purpose is ever absent from the utility of any article or of any service, however obviously its prime purpose and chief element is conspicuous waste. And it would be only less hazardous to assert of any primarily useful product that the element of waste is in no way concerned in its value, immediately or remotely. End of chapter four. Recording by Saracools, Oslo, Norway.